Today on CityCast DC, just when you thought it was safe to go back to the steakhouse, we've got news about protests at politicians' homes and all over their off-duty lives. I bet you heard about the Morton's incident with Brett Kavanaugh. On the one hand, activists have the right to protest in public places. But is this, like, a good idea? What's the theory of change? Do these things maybe hurt the causes they're trying to support? My co-host Bridget Todd and I have been to a bunch of DC protests, and we have some thoughts. It's Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. So last week, there was this crazy story, shut down DC, put out a bounty for any hospitality industry workers who saw one of the justices who had voted to overturn Roe in their restaurant. They would get a bounty if they alerted shutdown, presumably so that shutdown could call out protesters. Tell me, what do you think when you saw that? So initially, I loved it. I thought it was really clever. I definitely shared it on Twitter for a laugh. But the more that I thought about it, the more it didn't sit right with me that service industry workers who have already had kind of a rough couple of years with COVID were being asked to sort of take on this extra burden of keeping an eye out for Supreme Court justices who voted to overturn Roe to make sure that protesters could target them. But overall, I think I was okay with it. What were your thoughts? I was annoyed because it was like, oh no, we're going to have to have another one of these conversations where on the one side, it'll be like, hey, you should leave justices alone. And on the other side, the argument will be like, hey, there's no right to privacy. It's a free country. You can protest where you want. And why should we be polite to these people who've taken away rights? And I kind of agree with both sides of that argument. It's insane that anybody who's against this is using the language of rights because it is a free country and people should be able to protest wherever they want. But then it's like, how does this prove anything or do anything to cause change in a way that folks want? It proves that like 50 people feel passionately enough about this to go to a restaurant. That's only 50 people. Yeah, I think the theory of change might just be catharsis. It feels good to yell at people who have taken away your rights recently while they're trying to enjoy a steak at Morton's. I don't know that it's necessarily going to translate to actual meaningful social change, but boy, I bet it feels good to scream in someone's face or to ruin someone's night out while they're trying to have a steak. Just to be clear, the protesters who went to Morton's when Brett Kavanaugh was there, he did not even see them. He actually, I think, probably had a really nice night. I mean, assuming the steak was good. I guess one of the questions I have about this is if you are a Supreme Court justice who recently helped take away rights of a lot of citizens, why go out to dinner in D.C. at a restaurant where it's like designed to be seen? I find it to be a choice. Look. It used to be that the sort of ground rules of Washington were that everybody gets to be a civilian sometimes. You go out to the supermarket, you're with your kids, people just leave you alone. There's some downsides of that. I think it really enabled kind of bubble thinking, and you don't realize how many people are hurt and angry about the things you do. On the other hand, I think that kind of perma-war feeling is something that is probably better to avoid. And if you are on the left, it probably is in the long term not in your interest to have a society at perma-war. That's a good point. I think it's particularly salient in a place like D.C. that we know is designed for protest. When we see a big protest happening, whether it's a big rally with lots and lots of people or just a few people, I think the response is just kind of like, oh, okay, just another day. There are so many examples of creative protests over the past years. We are here and we will dance. There was the dance party at Mike Pence's house that I was 
personally at. There was the uh, protest outside of DeJoy's house. Right, these dance party protests at Louis DeJoy's house, the postmaster general, during the last election. Yeah, I think that we live in a place where we are, as D.C. citizens and residents, like very comfortable with all these different kinds of protests. And there's really just quite a history of it. Right, and you tweet about them and you share them on social media, and they're often visually quite arresting. Like, basically, it's just an easier time than ever if you are a creative wise-ass and you want to go <laughs> get your point across and get some attention and do it in a cheeky way that you can do that. But at the end of the day, raw numbers are the thing that really cause action. I think the cost to benefit analysis of it is like, it can be really cheap and really quick to get a lot of eyeballs on something. It doesn't necessarily mean that there was a lot of consensus behind it, that like there were hundreds of people who felt your same way. No, it just meant that you were able to hire a projectionist and had a laptop or could rent a truck or whatever. So it is an interesting question of whether or not these cheeky, smart-alecky, creative displays of protest if they actually do demonstrate some sort of meaningful consensus or numbers, or if it's just so flashy that it cuts through either way. I don't know if it cuts through. I mean, I think it's like it gets to people who already agree and who are already with you, and it proves to your enemies that a small, passionate number of people are against you. I was just like so bummed out. I saw a headline in the Post right around the same time as the Kavanaugh Steakhouse story that said hundreds of protesters had marched to the White House to protest the Dobbs decision. Hundreds. Are you kidding me? This is a city built for protests of millions of people who can fill them all. I remember going like in high school to a pro-choice uh, march that filled them all in like 1989 or 90 or something. And the idea that we have the capacity to do this incredibly creative, cool stuff that's going to go viral, but we can only bring hundreds of people out to the White House a couple of weeks after the Dobbs decision, that just seems like a, that there's something wrong there. Do you think that having a couple hundred people is less effective than a huge mobilization that where people fill them all and it's just bodies, bodies, bodies? I think if you're trying to prove to whoever you're trying to prove something to that the people are against something, that the people are feeling unheard, the people want action in a certain way. Having huge numbers of bodies out there and having them be quite clearly not people who are dedicating their lives to the cause. You know, oh, look, it's the lady from church or the guy from the CVS or whatever. They're all out there at the protest. That seems like the much more effective thing. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you there. I think that the more that we can demonstrate that it's not just like, activist types who are showing up or folks who are like dedicating their lives to this, but it's everybody's issue and everybody is thus showing up, I think is really important. When people get into the like finger wagging against people who go to Brett Kavanaugh's house or defending people who go to Brett Kavanaugh's house, I feel like we got a sidestep to this thing you and me are talking about right now, which is what's the way of getting your way? Yeah, I, I am not interested in any conversation about like, well, what about Brett Kavanaugh? Like, doesn't he deserve to have peace and quiet in his home? I don't think it gets us anywhere. I don't think it gets us closer to anything that is useful. So I agree that whatever we can do to bypass that whole round of conversation is probably in our best interest, because I just don't think it's an honest, productive conversation. And I just feel like if that energy, about getting a bounty on the justices, if that energy would put into something organizational that could actually turn out large numbers of people, it would probably be better spent. Yeah, and I don't know that... Brett Kavanaugh is unfamiliar with the idea that people aren't stoked about this, right? Like, I don't think it would <laughs> right. be like, oh, people didn't like this? Like, I was trying to have a steak and somebody showed up and told me they didn't like this. And now I know. 
I don't know that that is the way to move these people because I don't think this is the first they're hearing about it, frankly. And the Supreme Court is probably like a bad example just in general because they think of themselves as like a priesthood that's not supposed to be swayed by the passions of the public, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, think about like protests against Russia invading Ukraine. Like most people I know, almost everyone I know feels about the same on that. And in general, I think it would be more effective, probably wouldn't be that effective either, but to have something that demonstrated that the mass of the American people were feeling strongly about this. What do you think is like more effective about that kind of protest where there's lots and lots of bodies in the street? Well, it's just a sense of, holy shit, I didn't know that many people felt this way. Or at least I didn't know that many people felt strongly enough to take their Sunday afternoon and spend it on the mall or to get on a bus from like Tennessee to D.C. to go protest on the mall and then go home. Remember the Women's March? That was amazing. It was bigger than the inauguration. It demonstrated something. Now, there's no after that that it led to, but it certainly demonstrated in a much more effective way than people making funny slogans on Inauguration Day. It certainly demonstrated the alienation that a huge percentage of the country felt. Oh, my God. So you just articulated something that I've really been struggling with myself as someone who is a lifelong activist. I have been showing up and organizing big marches with lots and lots of people pretty much my whole life. And even when it's effective, like I agree, that was a great example of a march that was like so many people showed up to demonstrate this thing in mass. It felt cathartic and it felt good. And it was good to see, you know, that momentum and that solidarity. But I guess I'm feeling a little burnt out on it, I guess, these days, because we've been doing it and doing it. And Sometimes it can feel like there's not a ton of meaningful change to show for it. And it's pretty labor intensive, like showing up to a march with your backpack and your sneakers and your sunscreen. Maybe you'll get arrested. You have your phone number written on your arm, like all of that. Like it's labor intensive and you can't do it forever. There's a shelf life to how many times a person can do this before they get burnt out. And I don't know. I wonder sometimes I, this sounds so Debbie Downer, but do you know what I mean? No, no. And then and then the, the sort of more creative, like, hey, let's project something ridiculously funny on the Trump Hotel. That pays off immediately in terms of the like dopamine hit you get of knowing that everyone's going to giggle at this on Twitter right away. So for a exhausted population, it seems like a, a very logical thing to do. But it is, I think, a pretty significant change in Washington. It is weird for Washington. And I wonder how much COVID has had to do with it, because I think that we're getting back to a place where maybe we can gather safely, question mark. And I think in the span of 2020, when racial justice protests were happening all over the world, this idea of how do we still get our bang for our buck to demonstrate our social or political feelings and opinions, but do it safely when we can't gather. I think that we're still in this weird gray area of figuring out what it looks like to demonstrate in person in this kind of new world we're in. In the the 60s, in the civil rights movement, there were some very small protests too, like the sit-ins at lunch counters and stuff. I'm sure everyone after the fact claimed to have been a freedom writer and a sit-inner, <laughs> but like, they're, they're, in real life, there weren't that many. But what those things did, which like your dance party at Mike Pence's house doesn't do, is they didn't just highlight injustice, they provoked it and demonstrated it. And therefore, to a lot of people who were happy to turn their faces away from the injustice that was going on, they would see, well, those are some nice, polite college students who are getting clubbed for no sin other than asking for a sandwich at a Woolworths. And that's small, and that is limited to a group, obviously, of diehard activists who are willing to take a baton to the head for a cause. But it had a theory behind it that was sort of more than just pissing off some dude you didn't like. 
And that seems a way of being small and very effective. Now, that's because they had a Jim Crow framework that they could provoke and demonstrate. And I was going to say, well, there's not that many opportunities for that anymore. But I think one of the consequences of the Dobbs decision is there actually may be some opportunities for that. Sad to say. Yeah, that's also a good point that like, I don't know if you've been to the, um, what is the museum in Atlanta, the um, Human and Civil Rights Museum, they have this wonderful installation dedicated to the Freedom Riders, where you sit on a lunch counter and you put on headphones, and it's supposed to mimic what that would have been like to be taking clubs to the head and having people blow cigarette smoke in your face and throw milk at you as you sat there. And I think there's something about what you just said, the kind of quiet power of that demonstration, but also the incredible amount of restraint and training. Like these young people trained for weeks and weeks on how to sustain that kind of thing. And so I really enjoyed being at that dance party, but I didn't have to take any kind of like training to teach myself how to do that. And when I was visited that museum, I, was I might have to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, I'm you, not that good at dancing. A, a, some, a little dance class, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there was like a quiet power and a framework, I guess I'll say, to what you just described. Yeah, yeah, that's right. This question is like, what does this say about DC? The thing that makes me nervous is like, there's a kind of elitification of protesting. And I don't mean elite like country club and even like fancy education. I mean, like, it's like you're in the group who's aware of the really cool records that no one else knows about. And... <laughs> You know, it should be about the squares. And I think one of the things about Washington, people who come to work in politics one way or the other, is that they are actually often thinking about the squares, about everyone, the regular people, and are less susceptible to that sort of in-group thing. But when we're talking about the kinds of protest activities that are just a small number of people, that is an in-group. By definition, there's nothing wrong with that, but I just wish the energy were focused on bringing huge numbers of people together. So what do you think, in your opinion, like what are good, effective ways to protest? Like what does that look like? Uh, it looks like filling the mall and creating a visual that should frighten anyone who opposes you. I realize that's not particularly new or creative. It's just like what I think Washington, D.C. does very effectively. Taking it back to the city's roots. That's, that's the plan, right? What do you think? I don't know. I think it remains to be seen. I think that there will always be something that is cathartic and important and impactful about seeing those overhead images of just people ass to ankles who chose to give up their Sunday to fill the mall. There will always be something about that that is impactful. But I'm working on getting to a place where I can say like, oh, what I think it's also meaningful can also be a real change agent. I am working on some stuff personally within to get back to a place where I feel like, yes, that is a valuable way to spend your Sunday. Somebody with power will see that and make a change because you came out. I think I'm kind of losing my, my mojo on it a little bit these days. Are you going to protest at my house? Maybe I will. Maybe I'll show up outside. <laughs> Just me, a, a, a one-woman protest. What will you protest? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll protest your opinions on GoGo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome talking to you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike. Bye. And before we let you go, some quick news updates. Julia, what's happening? Well, Casa Ruby has officially shut down all of its programming. It's a nonprofit that has sheltered and supported young members of the LGBTQ plus community in the district for the past decade. But recently, it's been plagued by scandals. 
You might remember that last September, the city withdrew its funding and founder Ruby Corrado announced her resignation soon after. Casa Ruby survived with support from grants, but that money seems to have mysteriously disappeared, and some employees say they haven't been paid in weeks. Meanwhile, a small group of congressional staffers are starting to unionize. The staff of eight House reps filed petitions with the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights. Those offices work for Representatives Chewy Garcia, Andy Levin, Rokana, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Melanie Stansbury, Ilhan Omar, Ted Lieu, and Cori Bush. Finally, on July 21st, Greater Greater Washington is leading a virtual training about how to run for an elected ANC seat. Candidates can start the petition process on Wednesday and submit any time before the end of August. We'll link the registration and more information about the training in our show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. I'm Michael Shaver from Politico. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends about it and help us out with a review on whatever podcast app is lucky to have you. We've also got more news and views on our morning newsletter. The link is in our show description. And I'll be back Thursday morning with some tips for you on how to be a Mystics fan, just in time for the game that night. If you aren't a WNBA supporter yet, you're about to be converted. Bye. Well, you are always welcome to come have a dance party at my house.